Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Matthew Hitt, who is the author of Inconsistency and Indecision in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, his book is published by the University of Michigan Press this year, and I've had the pleasure to read his book and also have him on the line here to talk about it. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, as we always do, uh, we, we like to have a conversation uh, about the, the great new books in the field. But first, we'd like to hear more about the author. So would you share just a little bit about yourself with us? Certainly. So I'm an assistant professor of political science at Colorado State University. I am going into my fourth year there. Uh, my research primarily is in the field of American political institutions, as well as political methodology. Yeah, the, the book uh, fits with that so well. Um, the book is really interesting, um, approaches the Supreme Court in this um, really analytical and, and quantitative way that um, for those that are, um, you know, have read other things about the Supreme Court, this is, this is really makes it really very interesting the way in which you test your theories. Um, before we get to that, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of just what the what the central focus and central puzzle here uh, of the project, and and um, maybe start by talking a little bit about this the, these two terms that you use throughout the book: unreasoned judgment is one, and doctrinal paradox is the second. Uh, what do these words? What do these phrases mean exactly? And and what are the what is a, a case or or cases that best illustrates how this works. Right. So the book is focused on the notion of logical consistency at the group level in a collegial setting like the Supreme Court. So I actually have been interested in this idea for quite some time of collective judgments without logically consistent reasons. Uh, you can ask my parents. I've always never liked because I said so as an answer to something, right? Mm -hmm. So at the Supreme Court then, obviously, you know, most listeners will certainly know that the court does two things when it issues a ruling. It issues a judgment, says we find for Roe or Wade. And then usually what we care much more about is the legal reasoning that the court produces behind that because that explains and justifies their exercise of authority to the public and to other branches of government. And crucially, it's what other judges and other political actors have to respond to, and at least in theory, defer to. So the quality and the comprehensibility of the court's collective reasons for why it's exercising its authority seem really important. What's interested me for some time is the court produces judgments, right? They exercise this authority without having a reason that they produce, that they give to the world, without producing a reason that a majority of the justices have actually endorsed. In fact, at times we see the court produce a judgment where a majority of the justices categorically reject all the reasons that have been offered to support the outcome that they are producing, which is quite puzzling if you think about it. 
And so this is a broader phenomenon that I term unreasoned judgment. That is a judgment the court produces at the collective level that does not have a reason that is publicly available that a majority of the justices have publicly endorsed in their opinions. So a subset, a subcategory of the unreasoned judgment is the doctrinal paradox. And this uh, is not something I came up with. This, uh, the term itself comes from work by uh, Lewis Kornhauser um, and uh, Sager. Um, it's also been generalized outside of the judicial setting uh, by Pettit and List and some other work. And so this is where you have a, that inconsistency, that lack of a reason is visible. Right, the court produces a set of opinions that essentially contradict each other to support a single outcome. So the example that I've used for a long time that I quite like is the case of McDonald v. Chicago from 2010. So this is where the Supreme Court was trying to decide, should we incorporate the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which would simply mean, do the protections that the court found a couple years earlier, do the protections of the Second Amendment apply to state and local laws, right? And the court sort of does this incorporation on a piecemeal basis um, for esoteric reasons that we don't need to get into right now. So in the McDonald case, they were considering a ban on handgun ownership in the city of Chicago. So the court heard a bunch of arguments. Um, they deliberated over opinion, over the opinions, They, you know, all that. And what they produced was a plurality opinion. So you have four justices who say, yes, we should indeed incorporate the Second Amendment, uh, and we should base that. The justification, the legal rationale we will give is the due process clause of the 14th Amendment supports this outcome, that no one should be deprived of this protection of the Second Amendment without due process of law. So that's four of nine. So that's a minority thinks due process is sufficient. Clarence Thomas provides the fifth vote for the outcome of incorporating the Second Amendment. He says, yes, I agree, Chicago should not be able to ban handguns, et cetera, et cetera. But in his opinion, he categorically disagrees with the, uh, the four justices in the due process camp. He says, no, no, the due process rationale is wrong. I disagree with it. That is not a good justification. Instead, the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment supports this outcome, uh, which effectively means cities and states cannot ban the private ownership of handguns. Interestingly, the four justices in the due process camp look at Thomas's opinion and say, "This, no, he's wrong. That's a bad reason. We disagree with that. And then you have four justices who dissent and say, we disagree with both reasons and we don't think incorporation is a good outcome. So you have a majority of the courts saying, yes, we can uh, prohibit cities and states from banning handguns. We don't have a reason that a majority of us support. It's not due process because a majority of us have rejected that. It's not privileges or immunities. A majority of us reject that. So the court essentially tells the nation, Chicago and other cities, you cannot ban handguns because we said so, right? Because neither of those reasons are supported by the court at the majority level. So that is a doctrinal paradox and an unreasoned judgment. Now, uh, you find that 15% of decisions fit into this category of unreasoned judgment. Um, is this more or, or less than you expected when you started the project? Is this on the, the rise or the fall? And, and what is the consequence of this? Because if, if what ultimately matters is the outcome for a locality, uh, why does it matter that the, the 
path to get to that outcome is sometimes muddied. Right, right. So to answer that in parts, the the 15%, so I'm considering unreasoned judgments in a few different manifestations. And so we do get to this, uh, what to me is a surprisingly large amount. Other folks have studied doctrinal paradoxes and this broader phenomenon and fa- and used case studies and sort of said, wow, isn't this bizarre and extraordinary and interesting? And so when I began the project, I was concerned and the people I was talking to at the time were a bit concerned that, um, well, what if you just don't find very many? What, is the, what does that mean? Uh, so to me, it's a number that's larger than could be expected. Uh, one of the things I do in the book is look at the dynamic, as you mentioned, Heath. So unreasoned judgments are on the decline. They've been on the decline for a little over 20 years. Uh, the court is still producing them, but it's producing them in uh, at a lower rate and in lower absolute terms than they used to. Now, why does this matter? Well, as I detail a bit in the book, it matters and doesn't matter variously to different kinds of audiences for the court's opinions. So other judges who have to read and, in theory, at least defer to the reasoning the court produces, other judges, especially federal judges, really struggle with these unreasoned judgments. They're difficult to apply in practice. They're murky. They're confusing. Federal judges in opinions and other writings have criticized the court and say, we don't like this. Uh, The court also pays some attention to its elite legal audiences. I don't talk about this as much in the book, uh, but law professors, legal scholars, uh, prominent attorneys, these sorts of folks, they care and they will criticize the court for murky, illogical, incomprehensible sets of opinions. So that's that legal audience certainly cares about the reasoning. Now, on the other hand, as you mentioned, right, a lot of folks, both in the mass public and in elite positions, are more concerned with outcomes, right? It's hard to imagine, for example, imagine a hypothetical world where the court overturns Roe versus Wade. And John Roberts writes a really crystal clear opinion and a majority of the court supports it. And it's great. Do we think that elite Democrats or Democrats in the mass public are going to feel okay or any better about that given the outcome? No. And in the book, I look at how both Congress and the mass public respond to unreasoned judgment. And effectively, it's a couple chapters of null results that the outcomes that the court is reaching matter more for support of the court among these audiences, much more so than the logical consistency of the reasoning. And you designed this really interesting experiment that maybe if we have time, we will get to. But you also... You know, offer a theory for why this happens. It seems pretty clear why the court um, uh, need not do this and why it might want to avoid this. But but you offer a couple of conditions uh, that set up uh, when the court is most likely to, to rule in this way. Uh, what are the reasons um, that you think best predict, predict this? And, and then we'll talk about how you actually test this. So, The first uh, interesting thing about the U.S. Supreme Court is that it largely, but not entirely, controls its jurisdiction. The justices mostly decide what they want to decide. So one of the first conditions of the theory is this notion that, well, for a lot of cases that come up to the court on appeal, the justices might look at that and say, well, this looks like something we're really going to struggle to resolve in a sensible and comprehensible, logically consistent way. And so the jurisdiction condition, as I call it, of the theory says, well, first and foremost, 
either you have to have a case that arises under the court's mandatory jurisdiction, which is a few cases defined by the Constitution and some acts of Congress. And these are cases that the court must decide in some form or fashion. Or alternatively, there are some cases that come up through the court's regular discretionary jurisdiction that are of such pressing social and political importance that the justices really feel they just can't ignore it. Uh, Recently, there were some appeals about whether the Trump administration could ban uh, immigration refugees from majority Muslim countries, right? This is the kind of question that the justices might say, we really feel some pressure to step in here. You also, when you look at the uh, production of unreasoned judgment, there are a couple other conditions, right? So going back to some work in social choice theory, uh, rational choice theory, the median voter theorem, there's a basic idea that if preferences over every legal issue are well-ordered in the sense that for every issue from the outcome of the case to every bit of the doctrine, um, you've got the justices can be organized on a some sort of left to right scale, which we normally would think of as ideology. That's sort of single peakedness, right? Uh, some folks may have seen. So you've got to have sort of disordered preferences uh, on at least one of the underlying dimensions that folks might be disagreeing about. And then to me, the quite interesting one is the production of a doctrinal paradox of an unreasoned judgment is also a function of the relative importance of that legal doctrine from a legal, social, and political point of view. So if the case is of overwhelming social importance, if the case has long-lasting potential legal consequences, uh, if the case might really raise some eyebrows among other political actors, for example, exercises of judicial review, these are the kinds of cases where the justices might say, yeah, I like logically consistent decisions. I like it when we can be coherent. But the doctrine here is so important and so pressing that I am willing, and in fact, I might actually desire to muddy the waters here and do this thing that normally our elite peers in the legal world don't like because that doctrine is of such overwhelming importance to me at this moment in time. And I call that the doctrinal condition, which I measure in a few different ways. Now, there are a lot of really interesting tests of this theory with with an incredible array of data, as you mentioned. The convention in this this area of research has been a uh, sort of microscopic kind of case study approach, but you you pull out in a in a kind of a very very uh, interesting way. And I want to focus on just uh, one of those tests to illustrate a bit about what you found. I wonder if we could talk about the findings here on civil liberties. Uh, well, first, what did you predict about civil liberties cases, and then what did you ultimately find? Because this is a pretty dramatic case. Where where the the argument that you you develop um, uh, bears out in some way, right? So one of the ways to operationalize this doctrinal condition is that cases that deal with civil rights, civil liberties, these sorts of things, should be more likely to result in unreasoned judgment uh, at the case level. And the reason for that is these are the sorts of decisions, the sorts of cases that involve the big ideologically salient kinds of questions that the modern court is most concerned with. Uh, and indeed, we do find uh, more doctrinal paradoxes in the world of civil liberties decisions, right? That you get more inconsistency in this particular issue area relative to others. 
And and how much more? Is this just a, a, a little bit more or a lot? The the evidence from the book suggested that um, this is a pretty big jump, not something that we would just say, you know, sort of happening um, at the margins, but uh, but a pretty big um, uh, increase when we look at the sort of the quantitative measure of this. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite substantial. Uh, it's one of these uh, things in the data where you see differences between consistent and inconsistent decisions, uh, sometimes vary quite dramatically. And so we see a substantially, substantially higher percentage of civil liberties cases resolved in an unreasoned manner relative to some of the other issue areas that judicial scholars tend to think about. It's something that I think is definitely worth taking note of in part because people in this literature and people in political science will recognize that these civil liberties cases are often the ones we end up talking about and teaching our students about when we talk about the authority and the influence of the court in American political life. So the fact that the court is involving itself in these major fundamental questions of individual rights and liberties in a way where they're affirming or denying liberties without that consistent reasoning behind it uh, is something that, you know, folks who want to take a normative bent at these findings might really raise some eyebrows at. Yeah. uh, Another way to think about sort of the normative findings is what you were describing earlier, which is outside of the response to this now, these uh, rulings uh, by legal scholars uh, or even members of Congress, which you you also study, um, you 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 approach th- this and, and look at those um, outside of government, um, and you design this really interesting experiment. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you did, what what the experiment was, and what you found about what the the public how how much the public cares about how the court reasons its decisions. Um, uh, based on the experiment that you designed? So one of the things that I really was o- overwhelmingly interested in as I was working on this project was to what extent do regular folks care about the quality or the logical consistency of reasons produced by an elite government institution like the Supreme Court? So I designed an experiment. We got a nationally representative sample um, and we randomly assign folks to one of a few different conditions where they would read a stylized version of the McDonald v. Chicago case, actually. So it's a gun, it's a gun rights case. And we'd ask those folks after we described, okay, here's the dispute. It's about whether this uh, other city can ban handguns and what should the Supreme court do? And we, I directly elicit, what do you think the right answer is? So this is a pretty, you know, in some ways, strong thing to do, right? To actually ask the subject what they want. There are other ways of getting at this in the literature. Uh, But once they told me, okay, here's what I think the right outcome is, I then randomly exposed them to a variety of different outcomes. Uh, The outcomes were incongruent with what the, the subjects wanted. It was, the court is doing something you just said you disagreed with. And then I varied the quality and the comprehensibility of the court's reasoning. So I presented some subjects with a stylized version of what the real decision in McDonald looked like, which is a doctrinal paradox. It's unreasoned. And I highlight in bold print, you see the justices don't agree on the reason, right? And I had some manipulation checks to make sure that, yes, people were indeed picking up on that. 
Then I had a separate version of unreasoned judgment where the court simply produced no opinion and said, here's the judgment, take it or leave it. And then I stylized a version of it to give an outcome that was logically consistent with the same vote margin as the doctrinal paradox version of this. And I don't know. <laughs> At this point, I'd been working on this thing for a few years. And I, I guess I sort of went into it expecting, well, I bet some people will care, right? So, you know, some folks might be a little more bothered by a judgment without a good reason or without an un- a comprehensible or consistent reason. And what I find is no support for the court, uh, support for the decision um, was not affected by the quality of the court's reasoning, that it's this outcome against gun control or gun rights, whatever you, the individuals said they preferred. That's the thing that drives dissatisfaction, in my view. It was not supported by the evidence that people in the mass public are caring tremendously about the court's reasoning. And in some ways, that sort of makes sense, right? Like this is this is a salient political issue. The outcome matters if you care about gun control or gun rights. And so what if they had a good reason or not? If you even if the reasoning was logically consistent, you can imagine some people would say, well, they're probably wrong or they're full of it or they're just too conservative or too liberal or whatever it might be and justify to themselves why the reason that they consumed, whether it was from the media or directly or whatever it might be, was insufficient. So I conclude from this that the court, at least insofar as we think about the Supreme Court as depending on the diffuse support, the legitimacy extended by the public to the court, to the extent to which the court cares about this and may or may not be able to affect it at all within individual rulings, which is a whole other can of worms in the literature. But even if it could, the quality of the reasoning is not something that's going to affect uh, legitimacy on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, well, someone smarter than me at one point said polarization is a, is a pretty strong drug. Um, that would be one of the interpretations here of, of what you found, not, not maybe not the most logical, but, but at least one of them, uh, the, the book, uh, inconsistency and indecision in the United States Supreme court is published by the university of Michigan press in 2019. The author who you've been hearing from is Matthew hit, uh, Matthew, uh, Matt. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking.